Lord, I just want to thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to gather and not only to celebrate your death, but to also mourn your death together, not just celebrating together, but also mourning together, Um, to come together to celebrate the beauty that is the church and the work that you're doing through Miss Chris and those like her in the world, but also mourning the fact that there's a need for it, such a great need, the the fact that we recognize that these massive numbers, eight to 14,000 people served over the course of five days is a massive number, and yet it pales in comparison to the massive need globally. So we come together today, together, in your spirit, in your name, at your feet, to celebrate together, and yet also to mourn together. I want to thank you so much for this opportunity to share. I pray that you would anoint my words, and that you would work through me. And none of this would be from my heart, but from your heart to your people. Thank you for ministering this word to me and give an opportunity to minister to my brothers and sisters here whom I love deeply because you love deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Wonderful. All right, so today is part two of a sermon series that we've entitled Eternal Perspective. Last week we started with the portion when Paul is responding to his critics. Paul's critics, they they criticized him because they said that Paul lives such an abject, persecuted, weak life that it's not an appropriate picture, an an appropriate recommendation of this God whom we're supposed to serve, that is supposed to be all-powerful and great, who's supposed to be giving to us his anointing and his salvation. They said, you see, Paul is a poor example of this because he himself is physically weak, he's constantly in danger, and so you guys shouldn't be listening to him. They were kind of labeling him a hypocrite. And so Paul's response to them was saying, you know, the danger that is a part of my life is actually an important component of this ministry. Just as the death of Jesus Christ is an important part of the gospel, my own weakness, my persecution, and my constant danger is an important part of my ministry. It is a stage that leads to life. And then last week, we saw that Paul says, let me explain why we're not afraid of death. He says, we do not lose heart. The reason he claims they don't lose heart is because they see something that is beyond which is seen, that they have a hope in eternity that is a greater glory than even the weakness and the pain and the danger that they experience on a daily basis in life. Now, that brings us to this week's passage, which would be 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, he's going to build on that idea that he laid down at the end of chapter 4, specifically verses 16, 17, and 18. Feel free to open there if you'd like. I'm going to give the way of a brief intro, and we'll, we'll read it together and jump right in. This morning's service already so far has surrounded this idea of tragedy and imprisonment. We see the, the oppression on, 
those who are, you know, bust into a prison after uh, seeking refuge, risking their lives for thousands and thousands of dollars. We see those who are lining up in the rain because their bodies are subject to decay and they don't have medical attention available to them. So they line up and wait for hours and hours and hours that they may be freed of something that's been ailing them, some of them for 20 years and plus. That last song that we sang is, we are no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. And something within all of that resounds within us, and it's all circling around something that, that we all feel, and it's, it's, it's kind of this, that the deep despair of life, something about it is not right. Something about it disturbs us and bothers us and, and outrages us, and yet it's so much bigger than we could ever address on our own. It's, it's, there's nothing that we could do to solve it, and maybe there's nobody in the world who can solve problems these big. I think that where this comes from is the sinful fall of humanity. See, when God created us, he created mankind, he created humans in his image to be fruitful and to multiply. He, he gave them this, this creativity that was built after his image. See, God is a creator God, and he made humanity have this drive and this ability to be creative as well. And their command, commandment was to be fruitful. Yes, of course, that means procreation, but also to develop. Now, God put them in a garden, and he gave them the opportunity to, to build and to to interact and fellowship with him that they can flourish in this living planet that he created. Well, as we know, uh, there was this external experience, this consequence were Adam and the woman who would come to be named Eve, were they to rebel and defect against God, they would experience death. It is really, really important that you understand, that we understand, that death was not a part of the human design. Creativity and eagerness and drive and ambition, that was a part of man's design as God intended it, but death was not. Death was an external experience. It was a consequence that when, when Adam and the woman partook of the fruit and rebelled against God, then they entered into death. On that very day began the dying of their body. We have to understand that this introduction of this external consequence, that is death, when it comes into the human life, it is a paradigm explosive shift. It dynamically changes the very existence of a human life. And it's because of this. It's not, it's not just the death itself, but it's akin to the death itself. It's the concept and condition of mortality. The condition of mortality. When, when man was created eternally, he didn't have to worry about his own safety. He didn't have to worry about this concept that we have that is survival to last, to withstand the elements, to withstand our enemies. Even the psalm that we read today, you know, when, when David is talking about that a friend of his um, rebelled against him and broke his heart, all of that 
oppression, exploitation, betrayal, it's tied up in our mortality. It's tied up in our mortality because of this. Humanity consists of people who will compete against other people that they themselves may survive individually. And what comes out of that is oppression. It is self-promoting betrayal. It is exploitation of weaker people and innocent resources for the flourishing and survival of the stronger individual. Understand that if we didn't have the risk to die, there would, there would not be this dynamic of competitive ambition, exploitation, oppression. There also wouldn't be disease and there wouldn't be poverty because there is no death as a possibility. So what I'm trying to build here, what I'm trying to, to make understandable is this. Humans were created eternally, but their sin brought forth death, and the possibility of death introduced new modes and motivations for more sin. This vicious cycle of sin leading to death and death leading to sin, which leads to more death, which leads to more sin, this has vastly stunted human's intention and purpose to flourish because we settle for poisoned wickedness that we can further survive against our enemies or we refuse to pursue our passion because it won't support a life coming back to this idea of survival. Humans who were made in God's image to create and do wonderful things have been reduced to these individual little mice just kind of protecting their kingdom to hopefully survive another day. And it's very, very, very disappointing because we long for more and our hearts break when people are killed and when people die, which is actually kind of unusual, right? Why is it that we're so outraged by death if every single person dies? If every single person who's ever lived has died or will die, why is it we're so outraged when there's death in the world? It's because this is just not how it was meant to be. There's something within us when we see oppression, when we see abuse, when we see the prison that is death. Romans 8 says that sin reigned, death reigned reigns in this world. When we see that, we're broken by it because we know in our hearts that's not the way it should be. So then we have Paul. Paul, who apparently runs headfirst into the very dread that is death. And he's constantly towing the line on the border of, of pain and abuse and persecution and martyrdom. And he doesn't lose heart. How can that be? If all of humanity cowers on the tyrann, under the tyranny that is sin leading to death, which leads to more sin, how is it that Paul has been made free? How is it that he's not afraid to die? How is it that he does not have to exploit and abuse? Well, that's our passage today. So you guys have already turned to 2 Corinthians. Now I'm going to do what I asked you to do, turn to 2 Corinthians. <laughs> And I'm going to pray. Lord, I want to pray again just because this is a great opportunity to hear your word. And I pray that you would move mightily in this place. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. I'm reading out of the New King James Version today. You're welcome to follow along in, in your Bible. Uh, pull it up on your phone if you'd like or reach into the back of the pew. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our inhabitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That is the word of the Lord. For we know. Okay, so we're we're just going to... We're going to start very, very slowly, and then we'll pick up as we get towards the end of the passage. First word, for. You can, you can see this word as kind of like because. He's tacking on, as I said, from the argument that we studied last week, where he said, we do not lose heart because we see things that are unseen. Uh, the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And he's tying it all to this thing that he's not afraid. He does not lose heart. He does not faint. And he's saying, this is Why? Furthermore, because we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We know. This word, know, for we know, it's not like an experiential knowledge. It's not even like an acquired knowledge. It's, it's a word that can sometimes be translated, we see, um, Paul is speaking with such ardent confidence and certainty, it's almost like he's pointing to something in the room. He says, we do not lose heart because we see we have, in, we have this heavenly house. Even if this tent is destroyed, he's saying we know this as if he can just point to it in the room, that if our earthly house, this tent. Um, Paul is going to go into metaphor, and then he's going to throw another metaphor on top of it, so it's important that we parse these out really carefully. Our earthly house, this tent. He's talking about his body. He's saying that within him is something that is his identity that is more than just his body. He's saying that his body is an earthly house. Now, this word house, don't think of an edifice, like a building. Don't think of the, even the house that you drew as a kid, you know, with the a, with a arched roof and the chimney, maybe out of brick. He, that is, it, it's important that we recognize that's not what he's saying here because he will mention something like that. When he says earthly house, think of earthly housing, this earthly housing. It's like an encasement, kind of like, you know, the, the plastic portion of your phone is, is called the housing. It's just the case of it because the actual functions of the phone are the, are the innards of it. And he says that it's earthly, this earthly housing. He may be referring to the materials of, of his body, the fact that his body is made out of earthly elements. We know in Genesis 2, God says, it says that God created man from the dust of the earth and breathed life in him. So the very elemental materials of Paul's body is even earthly, biologically. This tent is destroyed. Like I said, we're going really slowly. This tent is destroyed. Paul says his earthly housing is but a tent. It's just a tent. Your translation may say tabernacle. The idea is that it's temporal. Picture an actual tent. 
Now, Paul knew a thing or two about tents. Um, fun fact, when he was in Corinth, engaging with this church, he didn't want to charge the church and pay for his life out of taking a pastorate salary, so instead he took up a day job. He was a tent maker or a tent mender. He met two folks who were also tent makers, a Jewish couple named Priscilla and Aquila, and they joined forces and became, I don't know, this tent empire in Corinth maybe, I'm not sure. Um, but he says, he says, that's what this body is. And if you tie this kind of to the introduction, if, if the very thing that we are doing in life is doing whatever it takes, even, even reducing ourselves to oppressing and exploiting other people just for the self-preservation of this body that is everything to us, and it's just a tent, there, there's a breakup here. It's not worth it. You know, you, you, you may think that, you're, that, that you don't fall into this trap to, to only be taking care of yourselves, but Ephesians says that no man has ever hated his body but cherishes it and feeds it and cares for it. We all take care of ourselves, but Paul is saying his is, he recognizes that the housing that he dwells in, his body, is just a tent, which means it's temporal. It also means that it's structurally unsound. A tent is at best a shelter. It is not a fortress. It is not protection. A tree falls on, on your house or your apartment, you're fine. A tree falls on your tent when you're sleeping in it, not so good. So he says, if this tent is destroyed, and Paul, Paul has already talked about destruction a little bit in chapter four, but it's not the same word. This word destroyed maybe you translated it in your Bibles as dissolved, it's because the word is dismantled or disassembled. He's, he's building further on this metaphor. He says, this body is just a tent and there will be a time when I roll up the tarp and set aside the poles, when I dismantle it. And if my earthly tent is dismantled, we have a building from God. Now this word building, this is house like the edifice. It's, it's the word that means uh, it's like a house building is the literal translation of it. We have a house building which is better than a tent housing. We have a house building that's from God, contrasting it with his tent being of the earth. This one's from God. And it is a house, or it is a housing not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This term not made with hands is actually common throughout scripture. When, when scripture talks about something not being made with hands, it's referring to that there is some s sort of mysterious heavenly work that has accomplished it. I'll give you an example. In the book of Daniel, uh, he's, he's retelling Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he says, you washed as a stone was cut, but not with human hands. It's this mysterious work, and he's referring to the coming king that would be greater than all of these human kings. There is one king that is not an earthly, human, accomplished king. He's one who's going to come not cut with human hands. Or in the book of Hebrews, it talks about a temple that is not made with hands. So this is a mysterious, heavenly work, this housing he has from God, and it's eternal in the heavens. If an earthly tent is temporary... His building from God is eternal. It's not one that is going to break down. It's not one that is, 
structurally unsound and made from the things of the earth that are decaying in and of themselves. This is one that will last forever. Before we move on to verse two, I want to again harp on this assurance. Notice Paul says we have a house building from God. We have one, not we will have one. This is, this is a certainty and an assurance that's greater than just um, ethereal hope. It's like if you got in a car accident and you said, oh, it's, it's okay, I'll get a new one. I have money to get a new one. There's, there's some hope in that, but there's also waiting. It's different if you say, I got in a car accident, but it's okay because I have another car, so whatever. And we'll see that the, that the one that he has is greater than the one that he will lose. Verse two, for in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Yours, your translation may, with our house, which is from heaven. I appreciate that the New King James uses a different word there because it, again, is a different word for house. For in this we groan. In this, he's, he's probably talking about in this body. It's not super clear the way he says it, but that's what we kind of believe he's saying. He's saying, in this body we groan. And that's not these old ankles, that's not this back of mine. It's not like I'm groaning because I've gotten old. This is not the groaning of age. It's the groaning of anticipation. It's this, it's that thing that you do when you're in traffic, when your car will not move, and even though you're moving in different lanes, any lane that you're in seems to be the one that's slowing down, and you just, ah. That's what Paul is saying. He's not He's not talking about this body is getting old and so I'm groaning. He's saying, I am eager. I'm very excited. For in this body, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. It's getting weird because he's throwing another metaphor on top of another metaphor and it's easy to get, it's easy to get confused. Um, you do not wear a house. He says, we're going to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. This is gonna be important in the latter verses, but just hang on, it's this idea of being covered with this house that is in heaven. Moving on to verse three. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Okay, very important. Paul is gonna take two of these verses to come at a misconception that is really common throughout other belief systems. It's this idea that the afterlife is merely spiritual. That there, are some, there were some pagan beliefs that even, even felt that this body was evil and the greatest thing would be that we would be set free from our bodies, that we could be who we really are aside from the temptation of this wicked corpse of ours. Now Paul is saying that's not how it's going to be. And he, he intentionally uses provocative language, being naked, rather than saying we will not be free. He says naked. And the, the connotations of that are exposure, um, shame even. He's, he's intentionally saying that a spirit unembodied, a soul unembodied, is not desirable. We do not want to be exposed we do not want to be vulnerable out there and naked. We will instead be covered. And he's saying if, because he's going to make a logical statement. It's if then. It's not like hopefully, like 
if this happens to me, then I won't be naked. It's, it's kind of like if I say, if I wear my glasses, I'll be able to see well. I'm not, I'm not saying that if I could just manage to put these on my face, then I shall see. You know, Paul's just saying, you know, if we're clothed, we're not going to be found naked. For, who are in this, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may, swallowed, may be swallowed up in life. Again, he says we're groaning. It's, this is actually very close to what he's already said in verse 2. And he says we're burdened not because we want to be freed from this body, but because we want to be further clothed. Paul is explaining, Paul is explaining that life for the believer when it's over is not going to be uh, reductive in nature. Understand this, if you have a body and there are bodily joys and bodily treasures, right, we, we enjoy eating because it tastes good. We enjoy doing things that are fun because physically and bodily, they are objectively enjoyable. If we have a body now and a Christian dies to go be merely spiritual, we're losing something. Even if it's a blissful spiritual afterlife, we are losing something. And death wins. Let me explain it in a different way. Um, let's push this paradigm. A Christian is going to die, and his body is going to be relegated to a corpse, but spiritually, he's going to be free and living this joyful, blissful, spiritually eternal life. Is there such thing as a living body and a, a dead body? Yes, there is. I, I know that there's such thing as a living person and, and a corpse, but I'm talking about the actual human tissue. There's such thing as living tissue. There's such thing as dead tissue. If you are embodying a living body now, but when you die, death will relegate your body to be dead living tissue. In that way, death wins. Death has swallowed up your body and spat out the bones that is your spirit. If the Corinthian church believes that there's no bodily resurrection, they have to logically understand that what they're believing is that the afterlife is going to be somewhat less than the earthly life is today. And Paul is principally and profoundly unsatisfied with that belief system. Here's why. We will be further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up in life. It is, n- it is not true that when we die here, we lose something, have a little bit less. Paul says when we die, it's going to be a means of getting more. It's going to be a means of getting more. The resurrection that is in Jesus Christ is so potent that it's a relegated death. This experience that is supposed to be deprivation demise, something to despair, Jesus has relegated death itself to being fertile, to being a means of adding to you and giving you more, so that way life isn't swallowed up by death, which is the way we often see it, but the other way around. The very death that we experience is fertile. The concept of death is swallowed up by what is life. Now he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who's given us his spirit as in guarantee. This is not just an idea that Paul's come up with. 
It's not this blind hope. Remember what he's doing right here is he's answering his critics who are telling other people that what he's doing is he's living a lesser life. He's, he's living this, you know, what's the buzzword that we have today? Poverty gospel. They say that Paul is living this poverty gospel because he's come up with some sort of weird, kitschy philosophies, and Paul's saying, no, the one who's prepared this for us, this, this paradigm in which we are living, where we're hoping for this future body, this is God's work. And he's given to us his spirit as a guarantee. This word guarantee is, is, a, is an interesting one, and in some ways it's very, very beautiful. Your translation may say, as a deposit, as a down payment. The old King James uses the term as a pledge. Um, You could probably understand it as earnest money. But um, I think the most beautiful thing is that this Greek word is what in the first century, even to today, is the word that that they use to refer to as an engagement ring. God has given us his Holy Spirit as a valuable symbol and reality of the commitment that is to come. So the Holy Spirit is to us a partial payment. It is a proof. It is a guarantee. And I think that's for a few different reasons. One, let's tie it to chapter 4, verse 16. This is why I think that Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is a guarantee. We do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. This world is reigned in death. We've talked about that. There's entropy. Everything is constantly dying and everything is constantly decaying. Everything is avoiding its death frantically and yet ironically ever approaching its own death. Paul says there is something inner working in the believer that is contrary to that. Everything in the world is rotting and dying, and yet internally, inside every single believer, is something that is not doing that. By the process of sanctification, a believer is constantly improving and growing and becoming more and more Christ-like, Jesus being the optimum example of what a Holy Spirit-empowered human being is. And as we get older, as we're progressing in life and our body itself is actually decaying, frantically avoiding, yet ironically approaching its death. Our body is decaying, and yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. There is a dissonance there. There is a contrast there. There is something at work inside the believer, and we know it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is entirely otherworldly. Everything in this world dies except inside the hearts of the believer is the constantly renewing Holy Spirit. It's otherworldly. I think another reason that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee is because Romans says that the Holy Spirit that dwells within us is the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Within us lies the the exact personal means of resurrection. The exact personal means of resurrection. I I don't want to relegate the Holy Spirit, who we worship as God. I don't want to relegate him to just being a force, but set, set that aside for this illustration. It's like saying, I know when I jump into the sea, I'll be fine because I'm already wearing a life jacket. 
The means of my survival of this occasion is already upon me. The Holy Spirit is the resurrector of the Godhead, and he's already dwelling within us. Why is it that we can sometimes be tempted to believe that you know, maybe there is no afterlife after all? Maybe we will die and be vastly disappointed in life. That that's not the right way for us to look at our lives. If we have the very personal means of resurrection dwelling within our hearts, we have everything to know that this life is guaranteed for us after our death. This, this last reason I think that the Holy Spirit serves as a very good guarantee of resurrection is, is somewhat speculative, so if you don't agree with this, feel free to disagree with me, and that's totally cool. The human body survives on oxygen, on breath. In, and then in, in Acts, or no, excuse me, in the book of John, when Jesus has resurrected, he comes back to his apostles and he breathes the Holy Spirit. He says, now receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them. This is... This is intentionally parallel to the the narrative in in Genesis chapter 2 where it says that God formed man from the dust of the earth and then breathed life into his nostrils. And, you know, Jesus is constantly talking about this new creation and a new life and being born again. And when these apostles are gathered in this room and the resurrected Christ comes to them, he breathes on them and gives them new life in the Holy Spirit. I wonder if the reason why the Holy Spirit is a guarantee for us is because we are already currently breathing the breath that will sustain our life in eternity. Maybe in the same sort of way that Jesus himself will be the light in eternity. Maybe the Holy Spirit will be the very breath that sustains us throughout eternity. After all, the word spirit, both in Hebrew as well as in Greek, is the same word as breath. And God has given us the Holy Spirit, the essence of eternal life and the person himself. And that's the end of our passage. But there's something profound in here that we can't as believers miss. And it's this, in Christ there will always be more. There will always be more. We approach our faith in Jesus Christ like it's constantly this process of merely being stripped of evil things. Remember, Paul says, I'm not eager to be stripped down and be exposed naked. I'm eager to be further clothed. Even in the very body of the believer, there will be nothing lost for the sake of Jesus Christ. And there's a huge problem if, if... if we don't know the, the eternal theology and, and, and what is waiting for us in heaven, there, there's a huge danger to see Jesus as just another oppressor over humanity that will take and take and take from you until there's nothing to take anymore. Now, we, we, would, we would, of course, very, very rarely confess that we feel that way, but when we have this wrong paradigm within our hearts that our relationship with Jesus is just about shedding off sin, That's what we're doing. We're claiming Jesus is an oppressor. That he's exploiting us for his use. God never does that. God is never taking just bad things from you and leaving you less than what you had before. I'm gonna say something kind of radical, but stick with me because I'm not gonna end with it. There is physical 
substantial and comprehensible gratification in sin. Comprehensible. There is a joy to it. There is a pleasure to it. And that's why we do it. If it was just death to us, nobody would do it. But there is actually something substantial that tempts us towards sin. And when we walk with Christ and we're allowing him to renew us day by day, the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, we lay down substantial, physical, comprehensible, literally physical things. We lay down um, fornication, which is physically pleasurable. If, if we've thieved before, we lay down the acquisition of materials at no consequence for us. If we struggle with the love of money and we're allowing the Lord to renew us in that, we're laying down riches, possessions, and comfort, real physical things. If we offer to the Lord our money, we are giving him substance. The problem is, is we approach our faith in Jesus Christ as if the rewards in Jesus are merely immaterial in nature. That they're immaterial rewards. You know, I, I've heard, uh, actually, my, my wife and I were, were training to, to be licensed as, as foster parents, and there was a passage in our teaching in our class that says the rewards are primarily immaterial. The rewards are primarily immaterial. They will provide you with a stipend to help you to you know, pay for the child that's in your home, and it's, so that way it's not a financial burden for you. But the child is not going to give to you. The state is not going to give you a fortune to do this service. The rewards are primarily immaterial. And there, there's things about us when we look at parenting where we say that's honorable. We shouldn't exploit our kids to get, to get money from them or get service from them and turn them into slaves. We think that that's beautiful. But why is it that we approach our faith in God like that? As if the rewards in Jesus are predominantly immaterial. Is our relationship with God the relationship of a parent and a child, us being the parent and God being the child, and we're serving that child and getting predominantly immaterial reward from that? Definitely not. Definitely not. Scripture is consistent saying that God is the father and we are the children. And, and although in parenting, your rewards are predominantly immaterial, when you're a child, your rewards from your parents are never mainly immaterial. Your parents are constantly giving to you. And you may not have a good relationship with your parents, but you know that that's the way it should be. Your, your parents are providing for you financially. They're, they're, they're giving you food. They're giving you shelter. What you receive from your parent is not just immaterial. And yet, so oftentimes we project this upon God, that the benefits of serving God is... is you know, like serenity, it's just this levity and peace, and these are good things. That's true. But if we are giving material, financial, substantial things to God, and we think that he's not going to give those things back to us in eternity, then we are, we're bordering on blasphemy. I know that that's getting heavy, but we're bordering on blasphemy because we are, we are functionally saying that we are better givers than our God. You know the substance of that it is that you've given up for the Lord to his glory and by his grace you've been able to accomplish that. But you know that there is substance to that. You know that there are things that you give to the Lord and that you've given up for God, that you've forsaken for God. I assure you, you are not a better giver than your God. 
you will never be cheated and disappointed in your God. Jesus calls his disciples to lay down their lives for him. And we as human beings, all we have is our lives. What is it that we think that we're getting back from the Lord? Is it predominantly immaterial? Is our life gonna be swallowed up in death? We have to understand that, yeah, this, there's, there's a theology in this. There's a theology in this that says Christians, when they die, there is a physical, material body that they will receive. But it's not just that, because that really doesn't change the way we live our lives unless we understand this. Our God will never owe us. Our God will never owe us. And if Jesus calls you to lay down your physical life for him, to deny yourself, maybe even to the point of martyrdom, if he does not give you back at the bare minimum that body, then you owe Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just give you back the body that you gave up for him, but he gives you more and greater. And this trickles down to every single aspect of our relationship with God, constantly which is the very power of our sanctification. In the Holy Spirit, when you know that God is moving you to be something different, to give up something, to forsake something, you can be assured that he's gonna give you something greater back. God will not owe you. We border on the dangers of prosperity gospel at this point, right? If I give God to this, then he will give me this back. Remember, Paul, his hope is an eternal perspective, like we named our series here. Remember, he says, a building made from God, eternal in the heavens. He recognizes it's not here. And we need to not expect that God is going to be paying us back here on earth. That's wholly, entirely inappropriate. Sometimes he will, and he'll give good things to us, but that's not how God owes us. That's not how God gives to us. We've already said God doesn't owe us, but in heaven what we can expect that he's gonna give us greater in eternity. Never permit the temptation to think that the rewards in Christ are primarily immaterial. Never be tempted to do that because when you fall into that temptation, it breaks down the entire beauty that is the gospel. Remember, the whole reason we are saved is because Jesus literally, physically, substantially, objectively, fleshly died on the cross for us. God cares about objective truths, just like we do. And in Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The very, the very event that accomplishes our salvation is substantial, is literal, is objective, is material. Even the body that's awaiting for us is material. I want to close with this, lastly. If you're not a Christian today, the very best you can do is ignore the despair of death. The very best you could do maybe is to frantically avoid death while ironically you're ever approaching your own demise. That's super depressing. And there's a reason for that. It's because it's not the way it was supposed to be. Humanity is under the tyranny of death, and what God has in store for you is life, eternal life. Do not come to Jesus so that way you can receive eternity. 
Come to Jesus so that way you can receive the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Jesus himself. And as, as we close today, as we enter into our prayer time, and as we enter into our worship time, as we receive community, or communion, as we receive communion, Christians, I highly encourage you to remember that there is not one single thing that you've ever given up for Jesus that he won't give back to you graciously, magnanimously, overshadowing anything you've ever given to him. And if you're not a Christian today, I recommend that you, you reach out to somebody who, who's here who looks like leadership, maybe just post it somewhere, feel free to come talk to me and enter into that. But God, because God has way more for you than just decorating a structurally unsound temporal tent. He's got something of substance, even the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Amen? Let's pray, family.